Welcome back to the program. At this point in our history, it should come as no surprise that the adage, follow the money, applies not just to tracking down criminal activity, but to virtually every aspect of our economic and political system. In a world where free markets are expanding, where economic and political stability are closely linked, where nations compete for the free flow of money and capital around the globe, where bankers cozy up to leaders and leaders cozy up to bankers, sometimes those relationships can be out of balance. To understand it, it's worthwhile to understand how we got here and look at the 100-plus-year relationship between Wall Street and the administrations of 18 successive presidents of all political persuasions. In her new book, All the President's Bankers, financial journalist Nomi Prinz explores how a small number of bankers have played a crucial role in shaping the century's financial, foreign, and domestic policy. She examines how these relationships have influenced the creation of the Fed, the IMF, and the World Bank. She's now a senior fellow at Demos. She's a former managing director at Bear Stearns and Goldman Sachs. She was previously an analyst at Lehman Brothers and Chase. And it is my pleasure to welcome Nomi Prinz back to this program to talk about all the president's bankers, the hidden alliances that drive American power. Nomi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me back, Jeff. Great to have you here. Given the delicate relationship that exists not only domestically but in the world today between politics and economics, the globalization of just about everything, should we be surprised that there is this particularly cozy relationship between bankers on the one hand and politicians on the other? Um, it's a really good question. On the one hand, no, we shouldn't be surprised because we know from current events, we know from the relationship of bankers to the president from Reagan to Bush to Clinton to Bush to Obama in a more recent history, how that has manifested in deregulation of the banking system, in a bailout and subsidy mechanism from Washington for the mistakes that bankers make at the expense of the population, and also the sheer epic concentration that the big six banks now have of wealth, of our deposits, of assets, of derivatives, in a manner that has really never before been so concentrated and so consolidated, and therefore a consolidation of capital and of political financial power. So that's where we are today, and it shouldn't surprise us, absolutely. But on the other hand, it was very surprising to me to examine how very close, not just the influence ties were between Wall Street and Washington, between the chairman of our major banks over the century and the presidents and their cabinets that ran the country, but just how very intricately uh, tied they were from a family basis, from a social basis, from a correspondence basis, the level of connection really did surprise me because when I did my research, I looked at the big six banks going back uh, through that century of history, starting with J.P. Morgan running the Morgan Bank, which was the most powerful bank at the turn of the 20th century when Teddy Roosevelt was president and the panic, the bank panic of 1907 occurred, which is where I, I sort of start the book and start my research. But the through lines, the connections, the, 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 the sheer relationship strength between the individuals, not just the banks and the presidency, but the actual people that ran everything are incredibly fascinating and, and often 
cases quite surprising. Is it particularly different than looking at the relationship between administrations and presidents and big business and later on even big labor in the U.S.? When we look at leaders of of companies like General Motors or U.S. Steel or as big labor grew, people like Walter Ruther and George Meany, the relationship that those organizations and those individuals had with political leaders. Well, again, I didn't concentrate on those specific individuals and companies, though they certainly come out throughout the book. The reason I concentrated on J.P. Morgan, on Winthrop Aldrich, whose father, Nelson Aldrich, created the Fed and whose uh, great nephew was David Rockefeller, who ran Chase for two decades, and Nelson Rockefeller, who was a four-time New York governor and VP under Nixon. The reason I concentrated on families and banks that emanated from the Morgans and the Aldriches and the Stillmans and the Rockefellers and connected them through the political families of the Roosevelts and the Kennedys and the Bushes mm. and so on through history is because I did follow the money. That's um, my sense and what I learned by going to the archives of all of these presidents and I went and examined the president's perspective relative to the bankers, not the other way around, because I wanted the actual original documentation, the taped conversations when they were later existing and so forth throughout the century to really get a sense for how how impactful those relationships were on policies, whether they were financial or military, whether they were national or international. And certainly GM and U.S. Steel and those companies have a big relationship and come into play, but they don't have the same control of capital. They are, they are a portion of our economy, absolutely, and they've had more important um, impacts on our overall economy over that century, and certainly J.P. Morgan had a huge influence in U.S. Mm -hmm. Steel. Standard Oil was one of the larger companies that was trust-busted at one point by Teddy Roosevelt, though he did not bust the banks. He never busted the banks. No one busted the banks. They've only become (laughs) more concentrated in power and wealth over the century because of those alignments and relationships. So absolutely, um, other industries come into play, but the sheer... Um, influence of financial capital into public and political policy is what I traced specifically in this in this book. And in every case, in every president, from Teddy Roosevelt to Obama, in those 19 presidents, I always found specific conversations, documents, shows to engagements, or what have you, with the top bankers, not necessarily always six, but certainly the top bankers of any period of time. Sometimes they lasted in their top positions through decades while presidents revolved in and out because they were elected and they had to deal with elections, but but in every case they existed. And in some cases, the banks actually acted, it seems like, in, in a somewhat public-spirited way, certainly in, right. in moving out of the Depression and helping finance the war effort, and even in the post-war economic boom. Yeah, and that's a really interesting part of the history because uh, during the panic years, um, there was certainly a sense where the bankers were more in control of the economy. In fact, Teddy Roosevelt said to J.P. Morgan, uh, wrote to J.P. Morgan that you really have to sort out the situation and gave him $25 million of treasury money. J.P. Morgan got his friends together to save the banks they wanted to save um, and things stabilized. And you had the Federal Reserve come out of that because they wanted a bank of that would support them. And politically, that was also something that was supported in Washington for both the Republican and the Democratic side that was signed under Woodrow Wilson in 1913. It was a Democrat and Republican and banker um, collaboration. Um, and then World War One, of course, the Morgan Bank financed 75 
25% of the private financing that went into World War I from the standpoint of the, of the country as well as um, the allies of the country in, in times of that war. So, and then everything kind of went all haywire in the 20s uh, for various reasons that I described in my book, um, leading to the crash in 1929, and then we have the Great Depression, and then we have FDR. Now, FDR was a friend of the bankers. The bankers were a friend of FDR. This idea that he was a traitor to his class came about slightly later because certain people were a little bit annoyed that the regulations and reforms he put in, um, he was still putting in. But in the beginning of his administration, he was friends with Winfrey Baldrige, who I mentioned before, who was the head of Chase, and together they collaborated because it was necessary for the population and part of the New Deal to reform the banking system in such a way that there would be a separation between the speculative activities that bankers could do and the deposits and the accounts of the individual citizens of the country because that had gone so long and, and led to the Great Depression. And from the 30s through the 60s, really what happened, and the whole social connectivity came into play because the relationships were still there um, between Roosevelt and Aldrich, between Roosevelt and Perkins, between Truman and a man named um, John McClure, who became the chairman of Chase after having been serving as assistant war treasury war secretary under FDR, as well as the second president of the World Bank under Truman. So there was a certain uh, connection of those very um, strong entities of American influence in the world as a superpower and the bankers that were involved very, very personally and from a policy perspective on growing the financial and the political superpowerness of the world. But that had a public interest dimension as well, because after World War II, though the bankers made a lot of money in terms of um, additional private financing, as well as the war bonds effort, in which they were very closely connected with the Treasury Secretaries under FDR and, and um slightly German when he came in, um, they also had a sense that they actually were individual men that had a sense that it was important to maintain a strong national economy and a sort of greater good and public interest perspective as well as trying to expand internationally, which they were trying to do. So under Eisenhower and the Eisenhower Doctrine, um, there, was, there was very strong connections between Eisenhower and the bankers. They're friends, they golf, they, they talk, they did all sorts of things together, and they, they respected each other, but they were on the same page. The, the, the military um, Cold War stance of the United States helped the expansion of these banks into the world and, and, and grew the, the international global influence of, of Chase, the Bank of America, of National City Bank at the time. Those banks obviously still exist today and are still in the top six today. Um, that lasted through the 60s. That lasted through LBJ when he had his great society plans. Bankers are starting to come a little bit a little bit unaligned from the policies of the presidents in terms of what was good for the greater country. However, they were still able to be held accountable by LBJ and because they had personal relationships and he was a very strong politician in, in using those relationships, they're good at that. Um, he would say, look, you're going to support my efforts, you're going to support my tax plans, you're going to support my great society, and in exchange, I will stay out of your way, and I will help you continue to expand. So they, they, they fortified each other, but, they, but the president asked for something from them. And that whole period, so from the 30s through the late 60s, was a period that was had problems, certainly had problems, um, but was a more connected uh, period between bankers and presidents in terms of also accounting for what was good for the public as a whole. And that started disintegrating in the 70s and going after that. There does seem to be a relationship in the 70s between the disintegration of this, exactly what you're talking about, 
and globalization, the globalization of money. And Walter Riston in particular talks a lot about this, the idea of the free flow of dollars around the world and the competitive need for capital throughout the world. That, in some ways, seems to change all these relationships. Absolutely. That that was one thing. And Walter Riston, who had risen um, from this free market stance, in his life, really, his father was uh, very much against the New Deal and very much for this sort of, you know, free market libertarian approach to things, which um, would be fine if everything in the world were fair. But of course, what happens with capital and what happens with power is that it, it isn't inherently fair; it doesn't flow fairly. And with the standpoint of what Riston was trying to push globally, um, this again, this is after the period of this alliance um, from a Cold War perspective of, of a military and open trade and new branches being open of these of these banks throughout the world in that alignment. And and once they were opened, then it's like, okay, we've set up shop, now we need to fund our shop and the way you do that is with this free flow of capital. So wrecking all sorts of you know, all sorts of free trade initiatives. Um you know, wrecking the sort of boundaries of how much capital you could have flowing at any one time. And that was very much what, what Riston worked very closely with several administrations to have happen. And he warned quite publicly as he was still in the seat of rising and, and later became the chairman of National Citibank, which became um, a city, you know, city bank and now we know it as Citigroup, was very much a proponent of this idea that you you can lend, you can create debt, you can move capital. We should not have a gold standard because any kind of, of constraint, like having to have assets back your currency, was a, a, an impediment to this growth of capital. And therefore, he said it was an impediment to, to America, to America's very state in the world. America had emerged from the wars as a superpower. And he used that kind of argument to say, well, the only way we can cont- continue to be a superpower is to have the most freedom possible to be as competitive as possible in the world. And this is something that was supported in Washington. Washington believed this. It continues to believe that that uh, less restrained banks, and particularly the biggest banks, no one really cares about the small credit unions or farmers banks or anything like this, but the, but the politically connected superpower banks, um, that's important to not stand in their way. And that was the argument very much coined, you know, as you mentioned, by, by Riston and, and used since by Treasury secretaries within Washington, no matter what the political party, as well as the men that have run these institutions, this idea of American competitiveness follow the idea of um, national security. National security was about this alignment of military and economic and financial interests, and then the argument went from that to American competitiveness, and that was the argument that has been used to not just decimate regulations around the structure banks to, to re-allow that speculative and deposits to be side by side under one institution, but it has also created a tremendous amount of, of, of world destruction from an economic perspective because there were no restraints on which countries could be indebted to a substantial amount from the 70s and also nowadays from a derivatives perspective, it's just a more complex method of doing the same thing. That was a key inflection point that, that we were just talking about with respect to the 70s. But somewhere along the way, the other inflection point was the degree to which we privatize the upside and collectivize the risk. Talk about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, so I mean, this this also to some extent there was another tangent of the seventies that happened, which which led more to that. The thing that happened in the seventies was um, 
a bankruptcy, a couple of bankruptcies actually. So there hadn't been any really major bankruptcies since the 30s, and now all of a sudden we start to have more problems. And Penn Central was one conglomerate that Nixon wound up backing in terms of having the government come in for national security reasons to bail out this this conglomerate, which was only bailed out because all the big bankers had their money in it or had their bank's money in it and, and didn't want to lose it. So that's kind of an instance of, of bailing out um, a non-financial institution, but one that had a lot of financial legs. And then Lockheed Martin was bailed out again because it had a lot of um, backing from these major bankers and because the administration in Washington decided it was a national security measure to, to back this. So again, still a little bit on that. But at the time, also, bankers, as they were talking about opening markets and, and having less restrictions on their institutions found oil in the Middle East. And they started to realize that they could make a tremendous profit out of recycling petrodollars or the amount of um, profit that was extracted from the Middle East on their oil dollars and, 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 and use that money to lend to, in particular, third world countries like in Latin America. And they started to do that in tremendous abundance. But when you lend anything in tremendous abundance to a country that can't afford to pay it back at bad terms, you know, bad things happen. And what did happen was the third world debt crisis in the 80s. Um, and so what the bankers did at the time, uh, Riston and his, um, his new sort of protege, John Reed, who ran Citibank and, and, and Rockefeller and, and, and his protégés, um, they basically said, you know, we need the government to help us, to bail us out. They actually forced their hands in Washington under the Reagan administration and the Bush administration, who were, who were willing participants, and then giving them um, different manners of bailing their debts out because Latin America had was about to go belly up. This would be, of course, a catastrophe, as it was said to, to America, because we were so closely aligned with them trade-wise and so forth. Um, and so that's what happened. There's this idea that you could have a government really get behind uh, all of these bets and all of this economic havoc that had been wrecked by the bankers onto the Latin American nations. And that was another idea of bailout economics and, and bailout finance that happened under these two administrations. Um, during the Clinton administration and the peso crisis of 1994, which is kind of an offshoot of what had started with the, the other third world debt crises in the 80s, um, same thing. Robert Rubin at that point was the Treasury Secretary under Clinton. He had just come over from Goldman Sachs, having been a co-CEO there. Goldman Sachs had positions in Mexico. Other banks had positions in Mexico. Um, and, and Rubin really uh, convinced Clinton, and Clinton was not too difficult to convince um, to have another round of bailouts for, for Mexico and so forth. And none of these bailouts went to the people of any of these countries. They really they went to the bankers who had bets on these particular countries, um, whether they were lending bets or other types of, of trading bets. And so, so that happened. And then the Asian crisis happened in the late 90s. And then we had the Enron WorldCom debacle in the early 2000s. And then we had, of course, the major subprime crisis. Subprime, I say subprime. That's, that's, that's interesting. Subprime crisis in 2008, um, for which there was an epic, epic historic bailout and subsidy of these very same institutions that had wielded power throughout all of these years. The other change that took place, and, and it's so interesting to watch it in terms of these relationships, particularly as you write about it, is that it went from, and going all the way back to the Teddy Roosevelt period, right on through really our contemporary presidents, a sense of personal relationships that existed between these bankers and presidents. And then at some point, it really became less about the personal relationship and more about the economic relationship as money became so much more critical to the political process. 
<laughs> exactly. And, and as money became so abundant, um, again, without gold standard, without assets behind money, with the Fed to back bets, with the Treasury Department to back bets, money became less, um, yes, less important. And the personal relationships that had existed from Teddy Roosevelt to J.P. Morgan, some of which were very negative for the country, their personal relationships between Charles Mitchell, for example, who ran National City Bank in the 20s and was an incredibly risky guy and got all, had this idea of the everyman account. He was the first banker to say, all right, I need to have more deposits <clears throat> and convince people to do that. And Calvin Coolidge was his friend. They went to Amherst together and so forth. So there was all these connections where they were bad and good. And then, of course, Roosevelt, as I mentioned, had some very good positive social connections to Winthrop Algis, to James Perkins, um, and so forth. And when these relationships existed, there, there was a fellow, it was an interesting example in my book, um, George Whitney, who had been one of the senior partners at Morgan, um, even when there was a crash in 29, and through the core hearings, which led to the Glass-Steagall Act in 1932-1933, um, he actually wrote this letter at one point to Eisenhower, when Eisenhower was, continue, was considering reducing, for example, taxes on the corporations. And you know, here's this like rich banker, you know, part of the home team of bankers, etc., part of the Morgan constellation. And he said to Eisenhower in a, in a private letter, look, you cannot um, reduce taxes on corporations. You have to reduce them on individuals because the, the broad base of America requires to have more money in their pockets, not the other way around. So, again, that was a very public-interested perspective. Um, when money became so easy to get, it became also less necessary for the new crop of bankers from, from Rockefeller through Reed, through Sandy Weil, through Jamie Diamond today to care about what was going on in greater America because, that, because they were getting so many different sources of, of money to grow their power, to grow their profit base, to enhance their immense bonuses and compensations, but mostly their power um, in the world and in the political financial spectrum through the sheer concentration of capital. And honestly, they weren't as smart as, as some of as some of the forerunners who were able to balance their need for power and profit with the idea that it was going to come from a more strong, broad economy and population. And, and the people today don't need to care about that, don't think about it. And part of that's because there's easier money, and part of it, I think, is the level of lack thereof of integrity in these people. How much of it also is the lack of, of any kind of long-term thinking? I mean, it comes back to this idea of personal relationships as opposed to just being about money. Right. When they were personal relationships that were ongoing, these people knew that they'd be dealing together going forward. That's not the case exactly. anymore. Exactly, and for decades, um, Thomas Lamont, for example, was a Morgan um, chairman at one point in the '40s. But he started his relationship with with the presidency under um, when when FDR was the assistant war secretary under Woodrow Wilson. So back, you know, in World War One through. World War II, he had relationships with, you know, he, he actually rented out FDR's townhouse in Manhattan while he was a partner at, at the Morgan Bank, but he was, he was worked, he worked with Woodrow Wilson on the Treaty of Versailles, which was what came out of World War One, and he was still there in World War Two talking about how to help move the war effort and financing and looking at, he, he was trying to raise money for the populations of China after World War Two from, from the government because they were starving. I mean, there was, there was a, there was a, you're right, there was a, there was this very, when you start to trace, when I, when I trace some of these individuals that were really 
long-term, like half-century almost players in this political financial spectrum with presidents and in and out of offices and in and out of their positions at banks, um, a lot of their positions were, were, were quite helpful. Some were quite detrimental. But yes, the personal connection meant that there was some sort of a personal accountability. And that was enhanced by reforms like the Glass-Steagall Act, which, which institutionalized the accountability. But there was a willingness to have it. And today, yes, the, the, the relationships are more for, for functionary than personal. They still exist. Obama had more visitors from the major six banks to the White House relative to any other president before him. So there was certainly um, communications going on, but you also have tons of lawyers and tons of lobbyists and a lot more language and a lot more uh, using the media to get political messages through. And it has really created this lack of connection that has been more detrimental to the country and a policy of using this notion of American competitiveness as connected to a deregulated, very risky banking system, which is backed by the government with no accountability, whereas before there was backing by the government or, or policy alignments, but there was a sense of a give and take, certainly in the middle of the century. Um, and when there isn't, we've seen much more devastating results and, and, and much more crises and much more extensive crises on a regular basis, really, since the mid-70s and through today. If you carry all of these threads forward that we've been talking about, arguably it creates a perfect storm when you see less emphasis on personal relationships, more on the transactional aspect of it, more on the global aspect of it. And then add into that the whole issue of money and politics and the way the Supreme Court now views that. None of these things are really in any way creating any kind of a break on all of these threads that we've been talking about. No, and that, that's exactly the danger. Um, and going back historically, the, there are there are elements of that danger happening, for example, in the 20s, but on a, less, on a much lower scale, and, and there were still some of those personal relationships to tie it back, and even that didn't work out so well. And now, as you said, we have um, so little um, alignment, accountability, um, reform, anything, any demand from Washington of the bankers or the bankers, of consideration for the rest of the country, plus all of these dangers, plus the fact, for example, that the that the big six banks hold 85% of the insured deposits of all of us Americans of in, in the banking system. So six banks control 85% of our insured deposits, 84% of the bank assets, six banks, 96% of the derivatives exposure is held by six banks. So the concentration makes it even that much more difficult and even that much more dangerous. And the fact that there's been no accountability, there's been no reform, there's been no demands, there's been no change, and there's certainly been no give um, from the Wall Street community, it really creates a far more, far more dangerous, uncontrollable by design environment. And that will only create destruction for the rest of the population of the United States and of the world as we, as we continue to see, because there is no counterbalance to what is going on today. There's no personal alignments. There's no, there's no thought. There's no punitive accountability. There's no jail sentences. The fines that have been levied by the Department of Justice on some of these institutions are laughable compared to the sheer immensity of their deposits and assets and their trading 
profits that it doesn't even matter. Um, and that is where we are today. In fact, the crisis that we recently went through only added to everything you're talking about. It made the big banks bigger and eliminated more small banks. No, exactly. It's as if, well, willingly, no one in Washington, and certainly no one on Wall Street, looked at history and thought about, uh, you know, you mentioned before this idea of long-term thinking and, and considered how how bad this is because there is so much support for the, the larger institutions after the 2008 crisis. The biggest institutions got bigger, and, and they didn't even have to try hard. They were they were shaped to be bigger mm-hmm. by the Treasury Department, by the Federal Reserve, by government policy under both Bush and Obama. So didn't matter on the party, didn't matter who was Treasury Secretary. The idea was that these big banks could become bigger, which is totally counterintuitive to the idea of having too much capital controlled in the hands of too few, which is inherently dangerous to a system that doesn't know how to contain it. Um, and they were also given a tremendous subsidy from the Federal Reserve. Not only have we had the longest period of zero interest rates in our country's history, and that includes through all the wars in, in the Federal Reserve's history, um, which is of most benefit to the big banks because they are the ones that receive that money at, you know, at that non-interest rate. They also have had the luxury of the Fed buying their securities. So the Fed has a book of $4.2 trillion of debt. $1.6 trillion of that debt are mortgage securities. And again, mortgage securities were at the crux of the crisis that the Fed buys or takes off of the hands of the biggest banks in particular. So the banks now have capital, the Fed now has their junk, and that's a tremendous subsidy of of bad practice and bad activity. So the very fines that are being levied, which are small on these institutions, are more than paid for by less than one month of Fed activity in buying these securities that were the crux of these fines. So the whole system is, is, is so immensely skewed and so lacking in any understanding of historical context and what works and what doesn't work, that it is, it's a tremendously scary situation. We had an opportunity after the 2008 crisis to, to have real reform. It was certainly a huge wake-up call. Um, and now we have the stock market at almost near heights and profits are back and Wall Street bonuses are in their two or three top years ever and everything appears to be fine to anyone who is in the position of power on the political financial side. It's good to know that there are some things that Washington can be bipartisan about. <laughs> yeah, money, money and power is, is tremendously bipartisan. <laughs> Nomi Prince, her book is All the President's Bankers, The Hidden Alliances That Drive American Power. Nomi, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much, Tudor. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 